Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we are so blessed to be able to gather in your presence. We thank you for your spirit among us as we worship and exalt your name. As we give uh, financially, Lord, as an act of worship, we bless you. And Father, we pray that as we would hear your voice speak through your word, that it would transform us, that uh, where we are apathetic, you would spur us to obedience, that where we are sinful, Lord, you would redeem and cleanse us. Jesus, where we feel uh, lost or broken, that you would give guidance and healing. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Psalm 123, it's a psalm of, of, of the psalmist is, is experiencing great difficulty. We don't know the exact context, but he's in rough shape. Things are not well. Uh, it, was, it was possibly written during the Babylonian exile, it could be, which was in the 500s B.C., uh, where Israel was taken out of their land and the temple was destroyed and the people knew they were under God's judgment and things were not well. Or it could have been written uh, later, during, say, 170 uh, B.C., when there was invasion again and the temple was defiled. We don't know the context exactly, but the content is quite clear that there's great distress. Great distress. And not only is there great distress, but the psalmist says, I've gone as far as I can with this. I've had enough. I'm filled up with this. It's as far as I can go. We might say he's at the end of his rope. Worn out and exhausted and stressed. Burnt out, perhaps. You know, there's been many times in my own life, and I'm sure in your life as well, where you could say you feel burnt out or stressed out or overwhelmed with something that's gone on. I know there's been seasons over the last several years in my life where I've had to sort of learn how to cope with that and how to respond to that, uh, to give it to Jesus and also to, to manage my own sort of mental health and, and, and learn how to walk that out well to manage the stress. There's a stress, of course, of, of just seeking to lead the church well. There's a, there's a, I was, I was, we were meeting with a class on Friday. I had a meeting with a, I'm taking a, taking a course, and we met uh, on a Zoom meeting over class. There's, uh, we're from different countries, and so there's time changes and whatnot, but we were sharing and introducing ourselves to one another, and I was describing the weight of uh, pastoral leadership, that that can be particularly daunting. Uh, of course, you can't do it without God's help, and yet even with God's help, it's not just sort of magically straightforward, you know? Uh, that there's difficult work involved in seeking to lead people. And more than once, I've, I've thought of Moses and his trying to lead people to the promised land where they've been given a mission by God to be a kind of people in a new place uh, that God has given them. And yet all along the way, their life as the people of God is challenging. Their life as a, we could say almost as a church, as a called out people, as an ecclesia, called out ones. It's a challenging life. And sometimes the life for the Israelites is so frightening and it's so difficult that even as newly freed slaves they say, let's just go back to Egypt. Let's just go back. Like at least we knew what was happening. Right? At least we could we knew what each day would look like. We knew what we were getting into. But following God will involve stepping into unknown territory. It will not always be about knowing what you're getting into. 
It will involve navigating stressful situations. Uh, it will involve letting go of past trauma and learning to walk through that well. It will also involve confronting your fears. And it will involve moments of trial and testing and struggle. And that wilderness, that desert place that the people of God find themselves in, that the psalmist this morning finds himself in, that perhaps you find yourself in, or maybe you're not in it right now, but you have been, and I can promise at some point you will be again, is a place of testing, but it's also a place of spiritual transformation. The desert uh, is the place that God calls his people into. Israel's called into the desert to become a new people. Jesus is called into the desert. What does he find there? He finds uh, a temptation, a struggle over his identity and who he's to be as a Messiah. Paul also goes through the desert before his public ministry. Um, I think that's probably a good idea for those of us in public ministry uh, to first face some things in ourselves. And the church itself goes through desert seasons of stretching and growing and uh, relearning what it means to follow God. And the Bible describes uh, that spiritual life in desert language, learning to hear God in the wilderness. I read a book recently by a guy named Belden Lane, and his, the whole sort of thesis of the book is about encountering God in desert or wilderness places. And this is a, a quote from the book. He said, spiritual renewal often comes as we encounter the stripping of ourselves in the difficult desert and then the engagement of God on the mountain. Israel goes through the desert so they can get to Sinai. He says this, uh, Yahweh is the God who repeatedly leads the children of Israel into the desert and then towards the mountain." And Jesus picks this up also. We can think of people following Jesus into the desert or into the wilderness, into the place of scarcity, into a place of death. You may think, why would God allow me or, or guide me into a place of scarcity or death? Well, he does. I may not fit with your theology, but he does. So what do you do with that? Well, with Jesus, we find in the place of wilderness and the place of hunger, what does he do? He transforms that wilderness place into a place of food provided, life provided. Think of the 5,000 quite literally following Jesus into a wilderness and then fed by him as they sit down and rest and he prays and, and brings manna to them. And so the psalm tells us about desert experiences that they will come in our lives. First in the place of struggle and then in difficulty we find, what does the psalmist do? What do we do? then, if desert comes, where do we look? And the first thing we discover is that the psalmist looks to God. Look again at verse 1 with me. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. This is the first thing we do when we encounter desert or struggle. We're called by the psalmist, in this case, by God's word, to, to lift our eyes to God. What do we do when we face the desert in our own lives? Or perhaps even as we face desert as a community of faith, as a church, we're called to look first to what God is doing. Not to our own selves and not to our own various issues or brokenness, but to God. Now here we might ask, well, what exactly is the psalmist 
encountering? What's sort of the desert wilderness that he's processing? And as you read further on in verses 3 and 4, we discover he's, he's experiencing contempt and scorn from the proud. There's people in his life that are mocking God and mocking his faith in God. And it's difficult to encounter that in your life. And uh, those of you that have been sort of mocked for your faith, you'll find you know that, that it's difficult when people make fun of you or dismiss you for your faith in God, especially if there's a sort of, of, of uh, pr- a pri- proudful, prideful hubris behind that that just dismisses God. There's a contempt and a pride uh, that some people have to treat others as just worthless or insignificant. And I'm sure you felt that. Maybe you feel that even today to some degree. You're experiencing that in the workplace. Or maybe you've, you, you've, you've known that at school. Those of you that are students, if you've, been, if you've come through high school, perhaps you felt that while you were at school. Or uh, hopefully you don't feel that at home or in your marriage, but you might. You might feel that. And the psalmist sees all of that, all of the, the contempt, and all of the, the people who are being proud and full of scorn, and that can fill his vision. Those can loom large in his life, those, those people, those words that are said. But what does he do? Instead of focusing on that, he looks past them and keeps his eyes on God. The psalmist looks past them all and looks up to the one who is enthroned. And perhaps you're in a situation today that feels overwhelming, and your heart cries out to God for mercy. And you feel like the psalmist who says in verse 4, my soul has had more than enough of this. I've had more than enough. And so what are we called to do? We're called to look up, up to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. You look to the true king, and you ask him to intervene. And notice what happens here. The psalmist first prays, and gets hold of God in his life. It would be easy to start the psalm, wouldn't it, with all of the things that are wrong? It would be easy to start verse 1 and 2. God, I'm encountering all of this contempt in my life and these people who are frustrating. But he doesn't even start his prayer focusing on those negative things. Instead, he starts with God first and foremost. It's only to the end of the psalm that we actually get some details of why he's looking to God. He's, he's set his heart first on focusing on the one who's enthroned. And that's, that is not always easy. I know even this week for me, uh, Sarah and, and I and the boys uh, switched houses with my parents. And so we were moving and there was stuff going back and forth. And any of you that have moved, you know that it's not always easy. There's just a lot involved in moving. There's always stuff everywhere. And especially if you have kids, there's kids running around and uh, you're trying to navigate all of that, and sometimes you can get angry and frustrated with your kids or with how things are going, or you just feel overwhelmed and stressed out. When you're in that place, it's easy to focus first on all the stuff that's frustrating and not to focus on God. But the psalmist looks to God first before even getting into the specific issues. Sometimes we totally forget to pray, don't we? And instead we can focus on what's happening in that desert or in that trial, and we forget to look first to God. So that's the first thing we do. We get hold of God. We start with God. And notice in verses 1 and 2, we get four references to eyes. Where's the psalmist looking? He's looking 
up to God, and we get that four times. It's the sense of where you look. Where you look determines your focus, doesn't it? And the psalmist intentionally chooses to focus on God, to set his eyes on God. I've, I have, uh, in my years as, as a pastor, gotten various letters and, you know, feedback and responses and, and different things. And I can get very overwhelmed with responding uh, to letters or responding to, to things that have happened uh, in church. I can get caught up in my own sort of anger or sadness uh, about those things. And it's easy to get lost in that and not to look up and see God first and to look to God first and, and let him be the focus of my attention. So what do we, how, do, how, do we, how do we then rest in, in knowing that God is first and then rest in, in waiting for a response from him? Well, I like that Psalm 124, which follows, and I'm going to read it in a moment, is really about God's response. Uh, it's sort of the answer to prayer from Psalm 123. So let me read Psalm 124 for us. It says, If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, let's all together say, right? That's what he's saying. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away and the torrent would have gone over us and over us would have gone the raging waters. We would have been so overwhelmed, similar to the language of feeling overwhelmed with contempt. Now he's overwhelmed with the thought of what could have happened. But what does he say? Verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so we see a movement from being overwhelmed with what's happening in one's life, seeking God in Psalm 123, and then responding with praise and thanks to how God came through in Psalm 124, that he's a faithful helper that he's on our side and one of the best ways for you to envision that in your life is to think of god on his throne god is still on the throne and look at the beginning of psalm 123 we see oh you who are enthroned in the heavens a picture of god's glory and majesty as the creator of all things and then what does psalm how does psalm 124 end how, how is this passage book ended our help is in the name of the lord who made heaven and earth sort of a reference again to his kingly, uh, creatorly glory. And so there's a throne in heavens, folks, and it's not empty. There's a throne that's full, and if you're stressed and things are frustrating, I encourage you to focus on the throne. Focus on the throne. There's someone in charge. What frustrates you, what worries you, whatever the case, remember God's on the throne. He's over all of your life. And he's sovereign. And he's sovereign even in allowing the difficulty that comes. That can be difficult to process for us. There's a, uh, a passage by a fellow named Thomas Boston, and it's called The Crook in Your Lot. And uh, he describes in this passage how uh, if you've ever been camping and you're lying on the ground and uh, there's like a root or something just stuck in your back or maybe there's a real wrinkle in your blanket, and you just can't seem to, there's a crook in your lot. You just can't get out from under this thing. It's just always there. And he says, sometimes in life, we go through very uncomfortable situations, which are, consume our imagination. Sometimes when you've got that thing that's stuck there, 
Uh, that's all you can think about is how it's there. We need to get that out, right? And he says, even in, in large scale in our lives, the remedy for that crook in your lot is a wise eyeing of the hand of God in all that we find that bears hard upon us. That God has allowed this thing. Consider, He says, consider the doing of God in the crooked part or the disagreeable parts and consider the cross. You're looking at the frustration. You're consumed by the second cause. But would you be quieted and satisfied in the matter? Lift up your eyes toward heaven. See the glory of God in it, the operation of his hand. Look at that and consider it well. I, the first cause of the crook in your lot, behold how it is the work of God and his doing. It's very easy to think of the various uh, issues and brokenness that we encounter in life and to think of that as perhaps just from the devil or perhaps from something else or someone else. But we forget that God is the first mover and that God can allow things to happen in our lives uh, to shape us, to test us, and to refine us. Uh, if, you, if you want, as an example of this, uh, you can look at Psalm 66. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 66, 10 to 12, illustrates this exact point. It says, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. Does that sound like God to you? Perhaps uh, we need to expand our understanding of God. He says, you let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water and then this turn, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Now here the psalmist is identifying the first cause of the, of the sorrows in his life as God. But of course, God is not the actual one who would have brought someone into prison. That would have been other people. When he says, the, you, you let the people ride over our heads. See, that the people are the second cause of the, of the issue there for the psalmist. But God is the first cause. And, and the psalmist is intentionally recognizing my focus need not be on the people, who have caused this brokenness or this injury or this thing in my life, but to say, God, what were you doing in that thing in my life? You tested us, says the psalmist. You refined us like silver. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. God allowed this. But, but, despite that, God's greater purpose was to bring us, he says, to a place of abundance. That God's salvation was worked through even in desert and wilderness experiences. There's a second cause to things, folks. There's, and it's often people. Frustrations of people in our lives, issues where things don't go our way. There's also a first cause. And the first cause is to remember that God's still the king on the throne. And peace comes in recognizing that you're still in his hands and he's still good, even as he sends things in life which can be very difficult. So the first thing, again, just to summarize where we at here in this passage, is to focus on God who is enthroned. And the second thing is to focus on God's mercy. The psalmist sees himself as unworthy. Look at verse 2. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, there's almost a sense of, of unworthiness. And the psalmist often will, will point to his, his own sin and say, I'm full of sin. 
and God's allowing this thing to happen. Now, it's important for us to be very clear that not every trial in your life is like the direct result of some sin you committed. That's not how this works. Um, but there is a sense that even when terrible things happen, we're still experiencing God's mercy. That things for all of us uh, is so much better than it could be. Uh, that all of us in our sin deserve uh, much worse than what we currently have. Whatever the case, God is merciful. And the problems in our lives, whether you want to sort of blame the government for problems in our country or, or whatever it might be uh, that's, that's frustrating you or could be frustrating you, we need to remember that God has still been so merciful to us and that he extends his grace to us, that the one on the throne is good and we deserve far worse, but by the grace of God go I. And so the psalmist is surrounded by enemies. He's encountering difficulty, and yet he knows there's a king who's enthroned, and the king is full of grace. Uh, this is, again, the end of 124, right? If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, we would have been swallowed up, but we have escaped, right? Our help is in the name of the Lord. And the, finally, the third and final thing I want to I focus on is our obedience. There's a call in these psalms for us to remember there's a part to play. Let's look back again at, at verse 2 in Psalm 123, this, this reference to the hands, right? We get this several times. The eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master and the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of the mistress. And some, some uh, interpret this as, as, as like a really demeaning kind of sense of, of abuse, like um, there's a kind of very terrible situation where the Lord is sort of over the servant and, you know, kind of by his hand he directs them. But in, in Israel's culture, where there was still sort of servanthood relationships, those relationships were meant to be based in, in a sort of a respect and a love, and so there's, it doesn't seem like that's the case here. It seems more likely that the master can signal to his servant without having to speak directly to them. You might think of, of being at a meal and say the master's there and there's various guests and there's servants who are helping bring in the food and the master could probably signal to them to come in uh, and to, you know, serve the next course or he could respond and say just, you know, just hold on, right? Um, and so it doesn't need to be this negative thing, this sense of, of looking for the, the master's hand signal. Um, it can be done well. You might see, you actually might, a good example of this is you probably see Sarah and I sometimes try to signal to each other from across the room because our kids are somewhere causing chaos. Uh, and so we, we try to do sign language to each other. I don't see her at the moment. I don't know where she is. Uh, oh, you're right there. But we'll often ask if, if, if we're okay to each other. And, uh, and I'll look up if someone's screaming, and she'll be like, it's okay, you know. Um, so it's that, that kind of signal, waiting for God to signal, for the master to signal, how am I to respond to this situation? Uh, we serve a father who's on the throne, and we wait to see how God calls us to respond. And so rather than focusing, again, on the annoying or frustrating thing, we can focus on God, and maybe it's God's will that I might encounter some hardship in my life so I can respond in the way that God calls his children to respond. And in my response with kindness and grace, it can point other people to Jesus. And so when the world feels against you, what do we learn? First, God is on the throne. He's in control. There's a throne in heaven and it's not empty. 
Second, that God has given us grace. The one on the throne is kind and he is our friend and he's good. And thirdly, that God calls us to a duty to respond. There's always a call for us to respond with obedience and with faith, hope, and love. And so we can take courage, friends, that, that when we are in a desert place, there's one who loves us and who made us and who keeps us and is good. And even though he may allow that desert, that wilderness to happen for a season, it's part of the journey towards the mountain where we encounter his presence and grow more closely in him. And we may also put our hope in Jesus, who is the one who looked to heaven in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the one on the throne said no. And Jesus' duty in that place was to go to the cross and take our damnation on himself, where there was no mercy from God. And he died in our place for us. There's one who's gone before who's encountered the worst desert possible and come out the other end. And he invites us into new life today. How much better, then, is our lot, no matter what desert you may face, how much better is our lot because of Jesus? That we can look to the throne and see the Father there in his glory and see at his right hand our brother and know that there is mercy and grace and salvation for us that is far above all of the rulers and authorities and dictators and evil and brokenness in our world, that he is sovereign and on the throne. And so remember that next time you face frustration, whether it's at work or at school or uh, whatever it might be, that the world is still in good hands, that you are in good hands, that you can trust in the one who's merciful and who's on the throne. Focus on the throne Focus on God's mercy. Focus on your duty to respond to him. Uh, or as we might say, turn your eye upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Let's pray to that end and uh, as we prepare our hearts for the table this morning. Jesus, I want to thank you for uh, your goodness towards us, that you went to the cross for us, that your experience of desert and brokenness was much greater than anything we could fathom and much greater than the brokenness we might experience in our own lives. And Lord, that's not to diminish uh, the issues that we face, but Lord, we just put it in perspective knowing uh, how much more you suffered because of us, for us. Jesus, today we want to prepare our hearts to come to this meal where we remember your sacrifice given for us, that because of you, because you laid down your life, we can have new life. We can have salvation and forgiveness and hope. And so as we come back to this meal, this place of being remembered again, made whole again in you, we pray that you would fill us afresh, Holy Spirit, with your presence, so that as we respond to the brokenness and the difficulties in our life, we would do so with faith, hope, and love, that we would do so in witness to others of what you've done for us and in us. And Jesus, we pray that you would unite us together more and more as your people, as your church. And even, Father, we give you the this brokenness in our own church family, in our own relationships with each other. There always will be. There's always issues in churches where people gather together. But, Lord, we say today that we want to focus on your throne, that we want to look to you first and foremost, 
that even in the places that are difficult, we recognize that you're still good and you call us to love one another. And, and Lord, in many ways we fail in that, but today we just say uh, and commit afresh to loving you and loving each other uh, for the sake of your gospel, Lord. And so as we prepare for this table, Jesus, if there's things in us that we need to repent of, we do so, even in this moment. And we just pray, Lord, would you open up and show us if there's something in our hearts that we need to give to you this morning. And I would just ask you folks to examine your hearts. Is there something you've been holding on to today? Some unforgiveness, some fear, some anger. Perhaps some sin, some secret sin in your life that you hold on to. And may you look to the throne today and see one who loves you, one who died for you even in your sin. Would you give that over to him today? Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross even while we were still sinners. You died for us. We thank you that we don't need to be perfect to be worthy of this table. But Lord, because of you and your perfection and your purity, we've been invited to this table. Yeah, Jesus, we thank you for your work in us and through us and for this church body. And we pray that you would uh, grow us more and more deeply together in you and in love for each other as we seek to follow what you would have for us, for this church, in this season, Lord. We recognize the ways in which you have worked and moved over the years in this church body, and we thank you, Lord, for seasons of growth and life and vitality. But Lord, we even also thank you for the moments where it's felt like we've gone through deserts. Not because the suffering itself was somehow good, but because... We trust that it's also from your hand and that through those deserts you prepare us to experience you on the mountain. That your heart is to shape us and to transform us. Your heart, Lord, is that we would not stay the same as we once were. Lord, that's a difficult call for us because it means letting go of things in our lives. And so this morning, Father, we pray you would come with your grace and your mercy that we would not be swallowed up by the past or by the hurt, by the mockery of those around us, that we would rest in you and your name, rest in the goodness of you that we celebrate at this table. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do is uh, just prepare for communion, and uh, after the words of institution, there'll be two teams up here and we'll invite you to come forward and to receive and then take the piece of bread and the cup back to your seat and we'll all receive together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. The word says, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
So, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts that we may grow in your grace and be transformed to be more like you. We ask this in your name. Amen.